We're in a series called Conquering the Invisible Giants. Uh, These are the things that plague our hearts, that target us, that try to get control of us. And we're seeing how the resurrection of Jesus particularly speaks to to these things. And today, we're going to be talking about divorce. Divorce is complicated. Divorce... um, It's interesting because sometimes the Bible says that divorce is okay. Sometimes the Bible says divorce is a sin. Some people have been excommunicated from the church uh, for divorcing. And then others have divorced with the approval of the elders of the church. How do you square divorce with forgiveness? I mean, is it possible to say... I forgive you, but I'm still going to pursue a divorce. There are lots of people, lots of people who have violated the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage, and they need to know, well, now what do I do? We got folks who are divorced in our church family. We have friends and family who've gone through divorce. And, And there's so many people who feel condemned by the church because what they think the church believes. And so, what we're going to look at today, it's not just an exercise in Bible study. Okay? It's, it's not... It, we really want to know, what does Jesus say about divorce? Um, what does the rest of the Bible say about divorce? Because this is spiritual life and death for some people. For some people, this is the reason why they never, ever feel close to God. And these questions that I'm raising, they're actually not new. This was an ongoing debate during the days of Jesus, during his own day. And so today we're going to see how Jesus addresses divorce. And as Jesus addresses divorce for us, we're also going to remember and be reminded that divorce has this evil twin, this invisible twin. And that twin is called unfaithfulness. And unfaithfulness is how divorce begins in our hearts. Okay, usually divorce is the end of a lengthy progression of decisions, of events, of disappointments, of conflict. And if we can see where that unfaithfulness rises up in us today, we can stop the road that leads to divorce. And so what we're going to see, we're going to see that unfaithfulness weakens marriage and it welcomes divorce. So let's look at, uh, at the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to just look at two verses from this chapter. Uh, we're going to look at verses 31 and 32. Let me go ahead and, uh, and read these as we get started. This is Jesus talking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In this part of the Bible, one of the most important things that you need to understand is that Jesus is actually taking sides in a debate. Okay, this is one of the places where when you read the Bible, you have to know the context. You have to know what's going on. Why is Jesus saying what he's saying? Okay, and what we're going to do, we're actually going to look at Matthew chapter 19. 
Because there, Jesus says exactly the same thing that he says here, but he does it in a conversation with some other folks. And what it does is when he says it in Matthew 19, he speaks about it in a way that will help us see this bigger context, help us to see the debate that Jesus is speaking into. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. It says, And Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so what Jesus does here, it's really interesting, because before he actually answers the question um, that they ask, he begins to articulate his understanding of what marriage is. Okay, and in this passage we see things. In verses 4 through 6, we see that God made them, in the beginning, made them male and female. Right? And then he says in verse 5, the two shall become one flesh. And what we see here is that Jesus, in his mind, when he thinks about marriage, marriage is actually the relationship where God has designed human beings to image him. Okay? And what I mean by that, a way to unpack that is that there is both unity and diversity in marriage. Right? There's diversity, because you have a male and a female. Okay? And yet, and, and those two reflect different aspects of the image of God. It's interesting, when God created Adam and Eve, it says that he made man in his image, in his image he created them, male and female, he created them. And the idea is that God needed not just a man, but a man and a woman to be able to fully image himself in the world. And so we see, and, and this is why there's stereotypical differences between men and women. You know, there's stereotypes that don't always hold true to everybody, but, um, but so we see this diversity that actually reflects the diversity in who God is. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three are one God, and yet they manifest themselves in different ways. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have different roles in salvation, and yet they are one God. And so we see both the diversity and the unity in the Godhead, and Jesus speaks to that in terms of talking about the two becoming one flesh. So in a marriage, the two become one flesh. So there's intimacy. There is a shared life together. The intent of marriage is that the two are joined in heart and body and mind. And so this might sound idealistic, but to me it's helpful to remember this. This might not be new for you, but to remember it is so helpful. Like that's the purpose of marriage, is to reflect both the unity and the diversity of God. That's exciting. And if you're not married, it's something that, I mean, knowing this, learning this now helps you to prepare to be, if God has marriage for you in your future, helps you to, it helps prepare you to be the husband or the wife that God wants you to be. It helps you to know how you can be a good friend to other people, to understand this is God's purpose in marriage. 
And then Jesus says at the end of verse 6, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here he says that God puts his loving approval on the commitment of marriage. That God sees them as one flesh. Um, And Jesus brings this up because divorce creates separation. You know, he says, let not man separate. Let not man or woman separate. If God has joined people together in marriage, then we shouldn't separate them. When two people join their lives together and they begin to interweave, to rip them apart in divorce causes significant damage. And so as we think about the damage, I'm going to spend a little bit of time just thinking about just some of the ways that the divorce causes damage. And as I do that, I want you to think through um, uh, the idea of unfaithfulness, right? Unfaithfulness, the beginnings of divorce. Because a lot of times, you know, I mean, what Jesus has been addressing in the Sermon on the Mount are these things about, well, you might think you're okay because you don't murder, but if you're hating people, it's just as bad. You know, you might, oh, I've never committed adultery, but if you're lusting after other people, then Jesus says you've committed adultery in your heart. Here he's saying, look, divorce isn't a good idea. Divorce is wrong. But unfaithfulness can cause you to be just as guilty. And so as we think about the damage, let's, talk, let, let's think about unfaithfulness and how it also can ramp up in our lives. So we think about divorce and what it does. Um, you think about broken families, right? It breaks families apart. Um, it causes children to grow up in chaos. In chaos. Nine times out of ten, the children are, they, they think, they're convinced that they're somehow the reason for what's gone on. A lot of times, in divorce, children are forced to choose. And what happens is, that these children, they grow up in an environment where the most stabilizing relationship has been ripped apart. It creates significant amounts of damage. It doesn't just damage families, it damages individuals. Right? You think about the folks who get divorced. Um, my folks got divorced when I was 12. And the worst, it seems like the worst of evil is prone to come out of people in the midst of a divorce. Um, Because you're at that place where you are most vulnerable and you are most concerned and and you feel like the rug's being ripped out from under you. And you're also in a position to do the most damage to someone else because you've got the goods on them. You know all their flaws. You know all their weaknesses. You know all their, their their soft part. And people feel compelled to extract pounds and pounds of flesh in the divorce process. People do it to medicate the pain that they're feeling. People do it to justify themselves because they feel guilty and awful about what they're going through. Um, Sometimes they do it just to try to be in control of something. You know, just in this world of chaos that I can't control, I'm going to, at least I I can control this. And what this does, this kind of Wrenching. It breeds cynicism. It breeds despair. And I think, too, that divorce also impacts society. Okay, as I've thought about this, it seems like society's view of marriage 
really does represent the way that most people will deal with their commitments. Okay, think with me here. Um, Society is built on trust and faithfulness. Um, If the government alone is left responsible for enforcing the laws, society's not going to be tenable for very long. Government will become increasingly more and more oppressive if it alone is responsible for enforcing laws. And it can't do that. No one can do that. I mean, the, the brother gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and it's just, it's untenable. It doesn't help anybody. To say that marriage is the cornerstone of society, it, it's not a political or a moral play. Okay, it's not that. I just, I think that marriage is huge because it is probably the most significant commitment that people make today. Hey, what do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's a commitment I think that's most challenging and calls for the most sacrifice. It's the most difficult. Um, It's different from work, right? We're committed to work and yet we could get another job. We're committed to work, but you know what? We could get laid off. You know, we're committed to work, but we could move. There's, there, there's things about our relationship with our job that just don't match. You, know, you think about friends. I mean, marriage is the place where it seems like the biggest sacrifice is called for. That's where life could get the most difficult, where it might be the most challenging, where the struggles are the biggest. And a society's view of marriage shows, I think, at the core, if you're willing to stick to your word. Okay, and so, and this is true whether you're married or not. Okay, your view of the commitment of marriage matters. Because as society lowers its view of marriage, people become increasingly afraid to commit. There's this fear of commitment that grows. People become unable to actually commit long term. And then promiscuity begins to reign. Promiscuity begins to reign. And this is true both in the straight and the gay communities. You know, it's a big problem because the companionship, the love, the the, the acceptance, the deep affirmation that all of us are longing for, it can't be found in a culture that lacks long-term commitment. And so I think that understanding, I mean, this makes the damage even worse. And this is, I think, what happens as we lower our view of marriage, as we make it more and more and more acceptable to get divorced. Um, And society in Jesus' day actually experienced this same damage. And it was actually even worse then uh, than it is now. Um, Israel, the nation of God's people, they'd actually taken the Bible and then sought to justify their rampant divorce. Okay, and so again, in Matthew 19, um, let me read this to you. Um, in response to Jesus talking about marriage, you know, and talking about two becoming one flesh and, and this, the, the religious leaders then said back to him, they said, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Okay, and so this then relates to what we saw in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, and so, let me find this, actually. Here we go. Okay, 
So why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And so they're bringing up something, this idea of the certificate of divorce. And what they're doing is they're quoting a particular passage in the Old Testament. They're quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. Okay? Um, It says this. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Okay, and then it goes on. There's like actually four verses. The sentence is four verses long. It's really long. But the point is that um, this became, this is, here's where we see the certificate of divorce. Okay, that's made reference to both in Matthew 19 and in Matthew 5. Um, this was originally designed, when it was written in Deuteronomy, it was originally designed to protect um, someone who was divorced, mostly the women, because the women were, they were tend, it tended to be that they were cast out and they didn't have anywhere to go. And so this was actually designed to protect women, but some of the leaders in Israel had corrupted it. And so this is how they did it. Let me show you this. Um, the key here is this phrase, some indecency in her. Okay? She finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. Okay? The, the Hebrew literally says it's a thing of, un, of indecency. Okay? So you're going to have to track with me here because this is going to help you understand the debate and why Jesus was talking about this. Okay? So, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found a thing of indecency. Okay? That's kind of how it was translated in Hebrew. Okay, and so some of the rabbis that were alive at Jesus' time actually changed this phrase to, from a thing of indecency. They changed it so it read a thing or indecency. Okay, you tracking? So they just changed the word. They changed the word of to or. Okay, and so what does that mean? Well, so the thing of indecency, this is probably sexual immorality. Okay, it could be adultery, but it could be even less, you know, in terms of, 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 in, of sexual indecency. And what they changed it to was, it was a thing or indecency. So it's still justifiable to divorce for immorality or for adultery, but then you could also get divorced for a thing. So if you're married and your spouse did a thing... We're going to get to that here in a sec. Um, and so what ended up happening was in the evolution of this, um, they, they went from a thing or indecency to any cause or indecency. Okay? And so that was just what the rabbis did. Um, and so you, you have to know that. And it's important because, uh, and there are documents that, that you can read that show that people were given a certificate of divorce. They were divorced because of Wrinkles that mysteriously appeared on a woman after she'd gotten married. Um, Dan just shared with us, you probably didn't hear, um, there's a record of a divorce that was um, enacted because a woman burnt dinner, burnt meal. And so when they said any cause, they meant any cause. The reason it's important to understand this is because if we go back to Matthew 19, verse 3, read this again. Okay, so here we have, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has 
found, oh, boy, that didn't turn out well, did it? <clears throat> if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found in her any cause or indecency, and he writes her certificate of divorce. So the phrase there, any cause, is important because, so you come back to Matthew 3, and this is where the little aha light goes on. Watch this. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, so they're not actually saying, Jesus, can you tell us all the reasons why divorce might be legitimate? That's not what they're saying. They're saying, hey, Jesus, there's a debate amongst our rabbis today about the any cause clause in the divorce law. Where do you stand? Does that make sense? Have I completely confused you all? I'm sorry if I have. You can come and talk to me afterwards. The point, though, is that they're asking for Jesus' opinion on the any clause divorce. Um, And so that's what Jesus is responding to. Okay, it's vital because the rest of the Bible actually gives us other reasons that are biblically justifiable reasons for divorce. Okay, we see adultery, obviously, in our passage, sexual immorality. Um, Those are justifiable. Um, Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11 actually says that you can get a divorce for neglect. Okay, neglect. Uh, Physical or emotional neglect. And then 1 Corinthians 7 says abandonment or abuse. Are justifiable grounds for divorce. We're going to talk a little bit more about that um, a little bit later. And so, this is what Jesus is speaking to. Okay, Jesus is answering, where do I stand on the issue of the any clause divorce? And Jesus' answer is, only by sexual immorality. So he's saying, when you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Um, It's not a thing or indecency. It's a thing of indecency. Okay? Jesus is giving his definitive statement on Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That verse alone allows for divorce, not for any cause, but only for the cause of indecency, only for sexual immorality. Okay? Now, again, this doesn't mean that's the only clause, the only justifiable biblical grounds for divorce, but that's what Jesus is saying both in Matthew 5 in our passage and also in Matthew 19. Okay, and so really what Jesus is doing then in our, so then he goes on. So they said, why did Moses command someone to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're saying, Jesus, if this is true what you're saying, then what about the certificate of divorce? Like, why does Moses command people, that's what they say, to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus' response was, it's because your hearts are rock hard. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And so again, this is Jesus' commentary on Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Okay? And he says that divorce was never God's intention. Um, good Divorce is never the ideal but divorce is allowable. It's allowable. It's interesting that the Pharisees say, why did Moses command? Jesus says, uh-uh. Moses allowed. Moses allowed. It would be like reading through the driver's manual, um, 
uh, better than that, I've got this stuff at home called liquid fire. Okay? Um, and it's a drain. It's like sulfuric acid. You pour it in a drain, and it works wonders. It's magic. Um, it's really awesome. There are, la- I mean, the labels are just incredible on this thing. Like, it tells you, like, there's a thousand things not to do with it. Um, and one of the things it says is, if you give it to a child, and the child happens to drink it, call poison control. So, what the Pharisees were doing with Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, would be like me saying, oh, okay, there's a provision for what to do with my children if they drink it. Hey, hey, Ryan, come here, come try this stuff. Does that make sense? The existence of the warning is not a prescription to do what it's telling you not to do, right? The existence of what to do if you do, you know, in, in the case of an emergency, is not a reason to have an emergency. Okay? So, um, and that's what they were doing with this passage in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24, verse 1. And so, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, we need to reboot this thing, we need a fresh start. Okay, you've misunderstood, you've misapplied the Bible, and we need to come clean and, and start over. Remember, in Matthew 5, we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And in this place, Jesus, he's gathering his disciples, and he's talking about this is what it looks like to have a fresh start. He says, for us, for us, our commitments are going to mean something. For us, our marriages are going to last For us, we are going to be willing to show steadfast love and faithfulness to each other in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer. And so the question then is, how? How do we get a fresh start? How do you get a fresh start? Because maybe you've had a divorce. Um, Maybe you know it was a biblical divorce. Maybe you know it wasn't a biblical divorce. Maybe you have no clue. Maybe you are thinking about getting a divorce. Maybe you're toying with unfaithfulness. How do we get a fresh start? There's really two things. Two things. The first is, you need to know something. There's something you need to know. I think for some people, again, getting back, the idea of having a divorce in the past makes them feel like they couldn't set foot in a church because of the condemnation that comes. You need to know something. You need to know that God is a divorcee. God has been divorced. God has been divorced. Let me show you that the Bible says this. In Jeremiah 2, verse 2, thus says the Lord, this is he's talking to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. There are several places, but the book of Jeremiah really tells this whole story. God and Israel got married at Mount Sinai. After the Exodus, God redeemed them and he married them. And this is the image that he uses. Jeremiah 2, 20. And then, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. This is strong language, but Israel's actions were strong. 
they committed spiritual adultery on every hill in the land of Israel. In every way, they committed spiritual adultery against God. They left him, and they went after all the other gods. After committing to God, after saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God, we are yours, you are ours. They On every hill and under every green tree, they bowed down like a whore. And so, for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Here it is. God, because of the unfaithfulness of his people, God, because of their stubborn unwillingness, and you have to understand that there were hundreds of years that had gone by where Israel repeatedly, repeatedly acted in faithlessness toward God, repeatedly committed spiritual adultery to God until God finally, I mean, he sent warning after warning after warning after warning. And it got to the place where the people that were getting the warnings ended up getting beaten, getting stoned, getting sawed in half. And so God finally had to send Israel away with the decree of divorce. This is important because if you've been through a divorce, you need to know that God is with you. God is with you. He understands what it's like. He understands the betrayal. He understands the disappointment. He understands the expectations being dashed. God gets it. And we see how God reacts in Jeremiah 9. This is God talking to his people. Okay, this is God speaking. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain daughter of my people. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men, For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. God does not take delight in condemning anybody. When he is forced to get to that place where he has to pronounce a judgment, he does it through tears. This is the person of God. This is the personality of God. This is how much God cares. Some of you, maybe the only Bible verse you've ever heard is that God hates divorce. And you hear that, and maybe it's been said to you as though God hates you because you've had a divorce. I think this shows the true picture of God. The reason God hates divorce It's because it's awful. Because it destroys people. Because it rips hearts to shreds. God's heart is for people. God's heart welcomes them. God's heart longingly pleads for them to not continue going away from him.
This is the God of the Bible. I think it's been really wonderfully depicted um, both in your bulletin, got this half sheet insert. Um, this is one of our artists from Uptown, Gracie Rhodes. Um, she did this, and then she said she also wanted to paint it. And so she did it on these three canvases. Um, for her, she felt like, yeah, this is divorce and unfaithfulness. And, and let me read you this statement. Let me read you what she said about this. She said, a tree can represent life on so many levels. From the tree of life in the Garden of Eden to the blessed life of Psalm 1, it's a perfect symbol of the life together that God intended marriage to be. I remember when I saw it, I thought, wow, that trunk is really big. And she's like, well, yeah, these two lives are coming together. Um, Then she said this, divorce splits the tree like a lightning strike. But unfaithfulness is the parasite killing the tree from the roots up. The healthy individual on the left can be upright and healthy, and at the same time, they can be taken over by the sin of the other person, the parasite of sin. This pictures what infidelity does to an otherwise healthy marriage. So it just, it starts. It comes up. And it was interesting because when she dropped this off, um, she told me that she has one of her neighbors. She was painting this in her garage with the garage door up. And one of her neighbors was walking by and she had finished the tree and was just starting to paint the black and the red, the, the deadness and the death. And this neighbor said, hey, stop. Why are you putting that red on? You're going to ruin it. He said, why are you painting that? Why not keep it healthy? Friends, why are you painting unfaithfulness in your marriage, in your relationships? Why not keep it healthy? Here's what's amazing about God is that after these tears, this is what he says, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and that you have not obeyed my voice. That's what God does. God calls us back. God doesn't write us off. He doesn't cast us off. Even as he writes us a certificate of divorce because we have left him, even then he calls us back. He says, come back. Come back. I am willing to forgive. And his willingness to forgive, it comes at incredible cost to himself. Incredible cost to God. And we see that, cro- that cost at the cross. It's another verse, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. How much does Jesus love you? Enough to enter into the world and to die for you. For God to say, I forgive you, means that God is willing to take the punishment that your sins deserve on himself. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus gives his life for us in order that he might pump into our hearts his reconciling love and power. Friends, it's as you have been loved by Jesus. It's as you understand the power of Jesus. That's where you get the strength to pursue reconciliation with others. That's where the power comes from. And so, I want you to come face to face with the God who is a divorcee. That's where you start fresh. That's how you can start over. And then the second thing is, you, just, you need to understand the biblical grounds for divorce. You need to understand the biblical grounds. I don't have time to go into all of these. I'm just going to give them to you as a list. I mentioned them earlier. Um, the biblical grounds for divorce are adultery. If, the other, if your spouse has committed adultery, then you have biblical grounds for divorce. That's in Deuteronomy 25, 24. It's in Matthew 5. It's in Matthew 19, the passages that we've looked at today. Emotional and physical neglect are also grounds for divorce. Okay? That's Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, and then third, it's abandonment and abuse, which are really two forms of the same thing. Abandonment and abuse. Um, and that's, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now look, some of these things are clear. Adultery, it's pretty clear. Neglect, it's a little bit subjective. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Bible doesn't make it explicitly clear is because... Um, God has provided a church community and leadership in the church to help you understand how to apply the text of Scripture to your life. Sometimes it's really clear, but God has put elders and pastors um, and other leaders in the church so that we can look at the Scriptures together, to look at the situations and circumstances of life together. Um, if you've been in a divorce, if you're contemplating divorce, um, you need to do it with the help of the people God has put in your life, in the church. Um, we've been through this before. I've been through it more times than I wish were true. And there have been times where, as a group of elders, we've determined that this is a biblically allowable divorce. Um, and then there's other times where we've had to say, you know, we love you and we are committed to you both and we need you both to seek reconciliation. So you need to understand those grounds. Um, the reason why there are grounds for divorce, if you ever thought about this, um, it's because these, these actions, adultery, neglect, abandonment, and abuse, these are things 
that are so severe that they actually violate the marriage covenant. Okay? And so it's not that divorce breaks the marriage covenant. It's the sin that leads to the divorce that breaks the marriage covenant. Okay? When someone has done something that horrendous in a marriage, then the person who's offended ends up having the option. Okay? And it's one that you don't take lightly. It's one that you need to pray, you need to seek the Lord. In an ideal world, reconciliation is a wonderful picture of God's grace. But there are times when divorce is actually the appropriate path forward. Because it shows us that there also is judgment that comes from the hand of God when someone is unwilling to repent. When someone is unwilling to do what it takes to become what they're supposed to become. There's a point where even Jesus says, enough, enough. You've made your choice. You've, you've put yourself outside of the bounds of what a healthy marriage looks like. And we're simply going to acknowledge that. So as I think about this, I mean, again, I know this is complicated. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of verses today. Um, my hope, my hope is that you will be convinced that you need to, to get a hold of God's truth when it comes to divorce. Because there is life even through marital conflict. There is life even in the midst of divorce, if that's the proper path. We need wisdom to speak into our lives. We need each other. We can't do this stuff alone. And wouldn't it be amazing? Like, wouldn't it be amazing... Um, if we grew to be more of a family uh, in this area? Wouldn't it be amazing if we were all convinced that when God's word leads you to have to sacrifice, when God's word leads you to have to do something that's going to be really, really difficult, wouldn't it be amazing if all of us were convinced that God was going to raise us from the dead? Wouldn't it be amazing if you had a personal experience of having to go into a place of sacrifice and then seeing God raise you up? Seeing God honor you? Wouldn't it be amazing if we were a family where when we deal with these things, when we struggle with the real difficult issues of life, that this is a place in our community groups Right? with our friends and our relationships, talking to the leaders. Wouldn't it be amazing if this was the place where we knew we could come and we could find a power that the world doesn't know? If we could find a resurrection, a love, a reconciliation power, a forgiveness that would just blow our minds. That's what's at stake with Jesus' teachings. Jesus wants us to walk on this path that leads to resurrection life. He invites all of us to walk down this path together so that we can be this kind of family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when I think about you, when I think about the sacrifice that you made, to bring us back, to reconcile us back to God. God, when I think about 
you going through divorce. God, there's no one like you. There is no other religion. There is no other... There is no other God like you willing to take on all of our weaknesses, all of our infirmities, willing to suffer exactly the way that we suffer so that you could meet us in that place. Lord, help us to experience the truth of your word. Help us to experience your love. Help us, Lord, to understand what you say, why you say it. And I pray, God, that right now you would put on each one of our hearts a way that we can live out this reconciliation this week. Lord, give us the person, the place, the relationship where we need to step out and seek to be reconciled. And Lord, I pray too that for those who are here and have experienced divorce, for those who've experienced divorce and gone through the pain, but we're doing it um, under, underneath the authority of your word, Lord, I pray that you would rest upon them a word of affirmation and that they would be able to look up, not ashamed, but to look up and see in your face understanding understanding and affirmation that you were with them in what they did and Lord for those who are here who've pursued divorce outside of what you say are approved grounds for divorce Lord I pray that you would bring them to repentance that you would help them to come clean with you that they would ask you for forgiveness. And Lord, let your word of forgiveness bring life into their hearts. Give hope that things can be different. Lord, weed from out of our hearts the root of unfaithfulness so that we all whether we're married or not, whether we have plans for marriage or not, we would all have the character and the integrity that would make our church family strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.